Welcome to the Resist Bob podcast, hosted by me, Melanie Dion. Join me this week and every week as I chat with the advocates and activists in your neighborhood at the intersection where policy meets people. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Resist Bob podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Dion, and let's get right to it. Wednesday, October 12th is National Farmers Day. There's no debate that farming, which is literally responsible for the way we're able to physically sustain ourselves, is and should be a priority in this country. However, farmers across the board are in crisis. But this is a layered issue because not only are we dealing with farmers across the board being in this crisis, when you look at the racial demographic of the United States, it's about... 58% white, about 18.5% Latinx, about 12.5% Black, and 6-7% Asian, give or take, you know, fool around with those numbers. However, when you look at the demographic of farmers, 90.1% of farmers are white. This means that all other non-white ethnic groups fit into less than 10% of the farmer demographic. And that number continues to shrink for Black farmers. This week, we're going to be talking about the legacy of Black farmers in my home state of Louisiana. And you know, I'm always happy to talk about New Orleans and Louisiana. So let's get right to it. Like Three Stacks told you, the South got something to say. And as a daughter of the South, you know, I always have something to say, especially when it comes to my folks. So the first thing I'd like to say is hello to my guest and friend, Caleb Hill of Oakview Produce Company. He's right here in New Orleans, Louisiana, which as you know, is my hometown. Hi, Caleb. Good evening. So glad to have you here with us. I'm excited. You know, I always love to, to have my New Orleans folks with me. And before we get into your work, that's important, but we all know it's impossible without people. So tell me first a bit about you, Caleb, the person, and what brought you to your work or your calling as a farmer, because your story is very interesting. Well, I'm fourth generation in agriculture. My family actually started their roots in Florida, like north central Florida. Most of the people know that are tied to uh, chattel slavery, if you will, on the plantation. So, you know, how I got it, I've been dealing with animals and growing fruits and vegetables since I was young. One of my fondest memories is being on one of my uncle's farms, and he was telling me to go feed the chickens. He had chickens since he raised, raised broiler chickens, which like what we know as meat chickens or what you buy in the store. And the chickens are like dogs. like They are trained and know when it's feeding time. So he was like, come out here and help me feed the chickens. So I went and got a big bucket of corn and this is my first time feeding chickens and they just started they bomb rushed me so I didn't know that when you feed chickens you gotta spread the food out because they are like competitive when they come in that food when they hit the ground they're going for it so I I dumped the whole bucket down so all the chickens just start you just saw feathers flying everywhere and that was like a teaching moment for him to show me he's like you know no you don't do it like that you gotta pick up the food and spread it out and his beef cattle he had a little small stove and um it was more like a farm stand. He, he had like hoop cheese, different things that actually he, he was like a byproduct of what he had on the farm. Anything that he had on that farm, he sold in that store. And he did that for years. So I would say that was like one of my first memories and, and what motivated me to 
want to have my own. And in this day and age, I'm doing it more modern. So I have, you know, a lot of people purchase their groceries online. I had my own farmer's market some years back. It was a little spot called Ruth Carey that was over in Central City on Western Castle Hill, but it actually is defunct now. But some hustle and produce like that, I used to get on the RTA bus and bring produce to people. You know, I would tell you, get it how you live. It just, like I said, it started when I was five and it's grown throughout the years where when COVID happened, it really helped me. It caused me to pivot. I wanted to create a digital platform to be able to sell the produce and get it to the people because, you know, a lot of people are doing contactless delivery. And I also wanted to serve as another way to outreach and get my voice out there because that's one of the things, you know, with us being in the South, especially in Southeast Louisiana, food brings people together. And by me developing our website, which is makinggrocersmarket.com, people are actually able to purchase a product. And it's coming directly from the field. There's no middle person. When you go to the grocery store, at least four sets of hands to harvest that produce to a person that packs it and puts it in boxes and palletizes it into the delivery driver. The delivery driver brings it to the grocery store. And then the grocery store, they assemble it in the grocery store for you there to purchase. So one of the biggest things that I would help with is cutting some of the costs. It's also being efficient with getting that produce fresh on the field. So that's what we created a box called Fresh on the Field. So when I say it's fresh on the field, it's literally peak within a day or two of you eating it. But that's a totally different arena when you're dealing with most grocery settings that, you know, it has to get shipped from all over the country and actually some other countries to get to your plate. So from growing up, we had some of the freshest produce growing up. A lot of people don't really like vegetables because they don't know what it really tastes like. So that's one of the biggest things we know that and why it motivated me to get back into agriculture because I actually went to college studying because I wanted to serve people in the healthcare, but I was developing some web of technology for people that had diabetes. And every time I would do an interview when I was doing surveys throughout the neighborhood to see what their needs were, everybody mentioned, yeah, I know I got diabetes, but the grocery is too high, so I buy what I can afford. And sometimes the things that they could afford were things that were non-perishable that you know that could last a little bit longer opposed to getting fresh produce that they have to be able to refrigerate and hold for several days or for at least a couple of weeks. So that just, it shifted me. I say, I put the, the web of technology and the biotechnology thing to the side and said, I'm going to get back into my roots and start growing fresh produce and giving people access to the same things that you would think of like going to Whole Foods with. we using compost opposed to fertilizers that's going to wash into the, our water systems, our waterways. And I'm talking about the freshest of the fresh. So that was the main motivation was when I first started doing those interviews and going into historically black neighborhoods in New Orleans. That was my target population that I wanted to help because I knew that those were some of the main people that was having to go to the hospital with chronic health conditions. It all came back as far as um, me still wanting to help in the healthcare background, but I, I went all the way down, if you break it all the way down to the, the base, which was having the best thing go into your body so they can be processed and go to your mind, get to all of your extremities and all of your systems in the body, the best, it, it all goes back to the fuel that you're putting into you. That's amazing. When you talk, I think about that saying how food is medicine. And when you're not getting quality food, of course, that leads to a breakdown of what your body is capable of doing, how your body is capable of recovering. Like we know there are some foods that are just going to make us more prone to things like inflammation, just something as basic as that. So I appreciate having that awareness. With us being in New Orleans, we're a food capital. And yet when you look at the economic breakdown of so many of the people who live here financially, the ability to either buy whole, wholesome food or be able to access it in their neighborhood. 
Sometimes even if there's a matter of being able to afford it, you have to drive 15, 20 minutes to get it. So that's just a part of the reality that we deal with here in New Orleans. And we're not the only urban area like that. But I want to talk a bit about being a farmer and what that looks like when you're not white. So the demographic of this country, 57.8% people in the United States are white, 18.3% Latinx, 12.4% are Black, 6% are Asian. When you get to the racial demographic of farmers, 90.1% of farmers are white, 63 are Latinx, 1.4% are Black, and 1.1% are Asian. Knowing that breakdown, Caleb, what challenges do you face specifically as a Black farmer that you think people overlook or that you know people overlook? Well, I would say there's a lot of the reason why that there's a huge disparity is land ownership. So when you go back, you can go all the way back to the Homestead Act. We were not necessarily able to benefit from the Homestead Act in the way that a lot of white farmers were. So they, there are farmers, white farmers that own 10,000 acres. And with respect to 1,000 acres farm could be considered small scale because there are some that exist where they could be close to a million acres. You know, we weren't able to own land. And there are a lot of what we call in the industry legacy farms, which is black-owned farms. And it's, it's black and white-owned farms that have been in, in people's possession for generations where they're, they're 100 years in a person's family. And a lot of those people, 100 plus in some cases, 100 plus years. And it's very few of those because I, I remember going to a conference a couple of years back that the uh, Farm Bureau put on and they were honoring the legacy farmers. And it was amazing to see those, you know, the family up there that was black, that was from Louisiana, and their family was still together farming that land. And a lot of them, when you don't have the proper resources, being able to take care of that land, like people will sell it off, whether it be in different parcels or if they just sell off the whole thing because there may be a lack of interest in the next generation in being in that because it's hard work. So like I said, the main thing is just access. If you do a survey right now, the National Young Farmers, which I'm a member of, they do them often. The main thing they're talking about is money and land access. The funding is just so limited. Like they have grants, but they are few and far between. And the loans, it's very hard to get those loans. Like they have micro loans and loans for operational. And it's just, it's very hard to get the collateral to be eligible for those loans. That goes back to the Pickford versus Glickman case where they proved that the USDA discriminated against black people when it came to getting access to loans, grants, so on and so forth. You know, even just education. And it's appalling because considering the contributions that George Washington Carver gave to the agriculture industry for free, George Washington Carver, through his research, he found, you know, the benefits of crop rotation. He, he shared those things with a lot of the white farmers because they basically would have gone under. So it's just ironic, you know, our contributions to the industry, but we don't reflect the demographic as far as being profitable, as profitable with land. It boils back down to not having access, not knowing what resources are, re- are available, and the, some of the resources are just not readily available. And as I mentioned, the, the Pinker versus Glickman case highlighted that. And there are people that have passed on and now their descendants are actually getting the funds, the payments, because it took years for that 
that lawsuit to be proven. And by then, you know, people just burn out and they say, well, you know, made up for that. And like I said, it's hard work. It's not glamorous. You have to deal with the elements. It right with us in Southeast Louisiana and even Southwest and other parts of Louisiana, hurricane. Hurricane come out here and take out your whole crop and things that you put months into planting. And it is just one day. The wind and the rain can come out there and take it all from you. Or it rains too heavily. You have pest pressure. There's so many different things that, you know, it deters people from going into the space. So the, one of the main things, like I say, if you did a survey right now, people would say access to capital and land. It's also just the knowledge of knowing what to do from a business standpoint to be able to be profitable. And that is partially why my company exists is because I wanted to create a pathway for people that are black farmers, whether it be up and coming or veteran farmers. Because a lot of the times if you're trying to sell commercially, they have quotas and they just don't want small quantities. And, you know, you can't compete with a lot of things that are imported, but the quality is there. And my biggest thing is understanding that there's a person on the other side of your food and just bridging that gap and bringing the elders and young people together to land a lot of us started as farmers and you know branched out and you got a little bit more education and you went on and became a doctor you maybe you know your farm might have put your son or daughter through school and they became a doctor or engineer these other lucrative careers and they just it's not appealing to them one of the biggest things that i want my input to be and my legacy to be is to connect are interested in getting back to our roots to have access to these veteran farmers who get to pass that knowledge because when they pass on, if they don't have a child or, you know, their grandkids or anybody in their family that wants to take over, it's going to go with them. And they're going to either, you know, sell it off in parcels or they're just going to let the next person that is interested get it. And, and then we lose that. My family never owned the land that they cultivated, but they had the dreams that they would. But it was never enough to the point where they, they, some of them may be settled or they just, you know, let that go. And or some just still grow small, and I wanted to change that narrative, and that's why I stepped up and went back into the agriculture, even though I was headed towards like a corp more corporate career, but I found more pleasure in working with my hands. That really made me delve off into history. That's why I can talk about these people like Booker T. Watley, and well, a lot of people I would say a lot of people know George Washington Carver, but Booker T. Watley played an integral role in what we call you know modern farming today in the way that it's structured. And a lot of farms are profiting from his contribution. He was also a, an instructor at Tuskegee. You know, I tip my hat to Tuskegee because they put out a lot of great farmers in Southern University as well. That is the beauty of a lot of the HBCUs. They, that, that's where they started was those, they had farming roots, you know, the land grant university. So through agriculture and me being active in it, it's actually got me more in touch with the history of these land grant universities in knowing that some people they don't have a name name like talking about that they make major contributions to what we see today and it's just honoring them like honoring direct ancestors but also those other people that fought for years to try you know keep their crops alive but also wanting to hand it off to their children whether or not it happens i don't believe that it's impossible for me to pick up that that baton and, and take it on across the finish line as far as, you know, getting the next generation even excited about agriculture. We all got to eat and we all deserve quality food. You mentioned earlier about Orleans being a food city. Yes, yeah, a food city, but it, it, the other side of that coin is we also have 
many pockets of food deserts. And it's disheartening. You think about if you have company coming over, you want to keep your, you want to clean your house up and have, and have your best foot forward. So right now, I, I can't say that New Orleans, we ain't cleaning up. We're not getting on them, telling them to need a beaker on and hitting the baseboards and hitting them and taking the trash out. This really looks bad that our people are not taken care of and we, we telling everybody to come over. That's why it's backwards because you're not taking care of home. You, you ain't cleaning up your front yard. You got cold drink bottles and everything in the front yard. And you're telling people to come over. And you just like, look over that. You know, come on in. Step on over that. The dust mites everywhere. That's basically my analogy for how it is, you know. Let's get into that just a little bit because you, you touched on a lot of things, including how we're dealing with being a food city at the same time as having a lot of people who are food insecure in food deserts. When you're answering the call, because you are, you take this very seriously. You're very passionate about it. And let me tell y'all, Caleb is not just passionate about this conversation or this topic for the podcast. This is him. And that's why since it's National Farmers Day on October 12th, he was the first person that I reached out to because this is something that he is always knowledgeable and informative about in a very relatable way because we all need food. And again, I am a New Orleanian. This resonates with me. I think it resonates with all of us. It definitely resonates with people who who visit us. So when we talk about this from your activist lens, Caleb, can you talk a little bit about how you answer that call when you're dealing with food insecurity, food deserts, especially as times get difficult? Like we look at what food costs right now and it's astronomical. What have you found yourself doing? Particularly, we can even go back just as recently as from the start of the pandemic. How have you found yourself answering that call to these inconsistencies to the shortcomings that we're dealing with with just food in this country? Well, one of the things is when we have overages, I give it away. So I, I seek families that maybe have a need and even ask. And one thing I, I'm very passionate about is not just giving people stuff just because I got it. I'm going to ask them what they like. And if I got it, then I'll reach it to them, you know. I don't feel like, you know, just because you're, you're down and out, that you just got to take whatever. I, I remember volunteering with a, a local food bank, and the food that they were getting from a lot of, you know, major retailers, it was spoiled. And I threw it in the compost. That's how bad it was. And it was like, you know, put gloves on and reach it to them. I was like, no, this ain't fit for human consumption. And I threw it away because I feel like, you know, even if you're doing a giveaway, people should have quality food. And it's insulting considering the neighborhoods that they was bringing that food to. From that experience, that, like I said, I asked people what they like. And during the pandemic, when we did have extras, I was able to give away food in the eight world, which is St. Rock. You know, a lot of people know it's St. Rock. And we also gave away food in uh, Hollywood, Uptown. And we fed several hundred families with produce that was from black farmers. That was, I was very intentional in making sure that I not only supported those black farmers. And my company did not receive compensation for that. It was just something out that was on my heart. And I wanted them to have access to the best of the best. The same things that I would sell to a restaurant. Regular people, you know, everyday people that's working people, they had access to it. And 
that was something that, you know, we want to do quarterly if, if possible. And, you know, when I think about what the needs are, is it is having maybe corporate sponsors or, you know, people that maybe got a few extra dollars that they could share so that I will be able to get more of those type of things for people that are food insecure. Because I ask people, like, how many people is in their family and some of the things that they like to eat. When the people interact with my companies, I want them to leave with their dignity intact. So it's not for show. I was featured in a, a local publication, but it definitely, I didn't do it for to be stunned or nothing. I just wanted to take care of my people, and that's that's the main reason why my company exists. It is my livelihood, but it's also I want to be able to serve and give them the best of the best because I the same thing that I eat with no pesticides and I'm not pumping it up with chemicals to try to make it grow faster. That's what I want anybody that you know interacts with my products to have, and I just so happen to have a, a few people that are in my in a circle, if you will, a growing community that feel the same way about not spraying things down and the things that we may, may be linked to have carcinogens and different things in them. We are really passionate about that, doing it the old school way. And sometimes it's not popular because it's, it's not fast, but it's just, that is important to us to just contribute in that way. Well, Caleb, I appreciate your contribution. I know we, the people of the city, appreciate your contribution. So I want to ask, how can people support your efforts directly? We have our, our website, it's makinggroceriesmarket.com, it's M-A-K-I-N, groceriesmarket.com, and just visit and, you know, reach out. About, our email is okovuproduce at gmail.com, it's just O-K-O, V as in victory, U, E as in A, produce at gmail.com, and we open to getting as many hands involved, and we do have a donate button on that, and also if you purchase product, we have, a, you know, a program where if you purchase a, a box for yourself, you can actually help to feed someone else. It's not a new concept, but it's something that, just think about somebody else. If you got an extra few dollars, and, and I know money is tight for a lot of people, but thinking of somebody else when, when you and your family have a warm meal, you know, that's one of the things that you can do is you know, visit our site and share, share our website. If it's something on there that you enjoy, share it with your friends. Thank you so much, Caleb. And as far as you, where can people find you on social media? I'm on Twitter, mostly active on Twitter. We do have an Instagram, it's Okovu Produce, Co, O-K-O, V as in Victory U, E as in Egg, Produce, C-O, and that's on Instagram. And that's pretty much the social media that we have right now. I want to thank you so much. I highly encourage anyone, everyone to support Okovu. Follow Caleb. He is just a wealth of information and a delightful person. Y'all know what I say. Be nice when you when you follow my folks. <laughs> Be nice. Everybody that comes on this show is a person. And I'm not saying y'all won't be nice, but it's just a reminder. Sometimes we're all we're all struggling. So just remember to be kind when we interact with new folks, especially when we've encountered them on a podcast. I appreciate you so much, Caleb. Um, thank you so much for joining. I hope that you come back. There's going to be a lot of conversation, especially with the recent Inflation Reduction Act, where there'll be, you know, there's been money allotted to help farmers. I would love to have a future conversation about that and maybe, you know, a few months from now, look at what progress, what progress has happened, what progress hasn't happened and what the government can do to meaningfully strengthen racial equity in farming. So I want to thank you again and we will see you next time. All right. Thank you. 
I'd like to thank Caleb Hill and Okovu Produce for not only visiting the show, but also the tireless contributions that they give to my hometown and state and the great information we were able to glean today. Each of the links Caleb mentioned are going to be in our show notes, as well as a link to this episode's transcript, because you know, accessibility is everything. I want to thank each and every one of you for supporting not only this episode, but every episode of the ResistBot podcast. If you'd like to know more about how ResistBot can help you and your movement, go to resist.bot. Also, if you love us, and I know you do, leave us a five-star review. You can also text DONATE to 50409 and become a monthly subscriber. Lastly, but not leastly, midterms are right around the corner and no one who wants to participate should be left out. So keep your voter registration status in check by texting CHECK to 50409. It'll confirm if your registration is active and help you register to vote if it's not. It's simple because exercising your rights should not be hard. So again, I want to thank you for joining me and we'll see you next time. The ResistBot Podcast is a production of ResistBot Action Fund, a social welfare nonprofit organization. ResistBot is funded by monthly donors like you. Support ResistBot by texting DONATE to 50409. You can learn more and see a complete guide to using the service, a real-time list of trending petitions, learn how to organize your own pressure campaigns, or launch your own voter pledge drives at www.resist.bot. Thanks so much for joining, and we'll see you next week.